I'm Christine Hall, and I thought we would take a little bit of time to chat about uh, some issues today. So today we're going to talk about risk adjustment. How's that, right? Um, one of my very favorites. Uh, those of you that know me, I have a lot of favorites, so I, I use overutilize that word my favorite, but um, I really love risk adjustment. Um, I love the entire com concept of risk adjustment. So let me give you a little bit of a history lesson. You know, I'm pretty notorious for that at this point. I like to give a little history lesson. So um, the Balance the Budget Act of 1997, it allowed and it laid out the groundwork for a new type of Medicare called Medicare Advantage. And it was effective about 1999, I think in January of 1999, actually. And what it did is, um, let me give you a little bit of background before then. Okay, so CMS, they contracted with some public and some private companies, health insurance companies, and they offer a variety of different types of health plans. So Medicare said, we're going to develop this this little branch off of our Medicare benefits. You know, you have Medicare Part A benefits and that pays for hospitals, nursing homes, hospice, home health. Then you have your Medicare Part B. Part B pays for all your professional services. So any of your physician visits, any of your diagnostic imaging, labs, physical therapy, um, you know, just about anything that's not facility based. And that was good for a while. But if you think about it, um, the new baby boomers that are coming in, they worked right up until retirement and they were used to a certain type of health plan. They were used to these HMOs and PPOs and uh, paying a copay for a visit and having a medical savings account. And so transitioning over to Medicare that didn't offer those things was a little difficult. So, so that's where part C comes in. Part C is that Medicare Advantage programs, and it, it allows those private insurance companies to manage the patient's Medicare funds and provide them with benefits that are very similar to the benefits that they had when they were in, a, you know, through a group practice. And lots of other things they offered, um, you know, some of the Medicare Advantage plans, because they are commercially driven, commercially managed, they offer dental, they offer vision, they offer over-the-counter reimbursement, things that traditional Medicare just didn't cover. So the Medicare Advantage, the advantage of Medicare Advantage was that it allowed additional funds to take care of patients based on their conditions. So let's talk about that. The, the traditional Medicare fund allocates a certain per capita amount per patient to care for them every year. So there's a, you know, how many people are on Medicare? What's in the Medicare fund? What are the average costs to take care of these people? And they average about $11,000 a year. That is the ballpark per capita amount, $11,000. And, um, but that's not necessarily the best amount of money. So if we look at like my mom, my mom is 77 years old. She has no chronic conditions. She is the absolute poster child of health. No cholesterol, no hypertension. She takes no medications. She has her annual wellness visit 
once a year with her provider and she does wonderful. And so that $11,000 is probably enough to take care of my mom per year. I bet she doesn't even actually have costs that exceed that amount. However, my mother-in-law, totally different story. I believe she has every chronic condition out there. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm not exactly sure, but I know that she has multiple specialists. She has a dining room table full of medications and uh, she has home health and she has a lot of other things that are coming into the picture that are quite costly. So I imagine that the cost to take care of her definitely exceeds that $11,000 threshold. So when a patient sees a primary care doctor and they have Medicare Advantage, then Medicare Advantage works on the, the sickness of the patient or the, the value base of that patient. Let me explain that a little better. Okay, so it works on a value-based type of reimbursement model. And it means that the per capita amount can be influenced by the patient's chronic conditions. So for example, um, there's an estimated cost to take care of a patient with diabetes. Let's say that that estimated cost per year is $5,000, right? Considering that that patient has to see specialists, they have prescription drugs, they have testing machines and strips, they have lab work that needs to be done. Um, there's definitely an extra cost associated with taking care of that patient. So when the patient's primary care doctor monitors, evaluates, assesses, and treats or meets the patient for that condition, then the diagnosis is reported to the payer. And the payer moves those estimated funds for like the condition of diabetes over to the patient's allocated per capita. Now, all of this is just a very gross description of how the whole system works. There's a true science to it, um, but you know, we would have to be here for quite a few hours for me to really break down how that whole science works with you. So again, just for a casual conversation between you and I, and to understand Medicare Advantage a little bit better, that's how I'm gonna share it with you. So again, um, a primary care doctor, monitors, evaluates, assesses, and treats a chronic condition. And when that is reported to the payer, those funds are transferred over to that allocated amount. So for example, someone who's receiving $11,000 and now they have this extra $5,000 to take care of their diabetes has a pot of about $16,000 to take care of them. So that's allocating that, that's accounting for that extra money that's necessary to take care of that patient. Um, now, the conditions that are covered in this value-based reimbursement, there's about 11,000 diagnoses that contribute to about 83 value categories. And those are called hierarchical condition categories or HCCs. So again, reporting a diagnosis that that equals to an HCC category allows those extra estimated funds to be transferred to a patient's allocated amount to take care of them. So now we don't have those 
costly patients out there that need to be taken care of because Medicare Advantage moves the funds around where they need to be. My mom still has her per capita amount of $11,000 to take care of her if she needs to, um, but because she has no chronic conditions, there's no need to add any more funds to alloc allocate more funds to take care of her. You understand what I mean? So moving forward, and as patients are now selecting more of these Medicare Advantage plans, again, they're very beneficial. They're very similar to what a lot of the people entering into Medicare are used to. They're used to a copay. They're used to having an, an assortment of benefits through their employers, right? And so now they're able to keep that kind of functionality. They're going to go through a primary care provider who's going to be the conductor of their health care train and monitor all their conditions. And part of the responsibility on the provider side there is that they need to monitor, evaluate, assess, and treat these conditions and all the conditions that the patient is, is uh, that has. So their primary care doctor as the conductor needs to coordinate with any specialists, coordinate with um, any therapies that they're receiving, DMEs. So the primary care doctor now, they work as that main conductor of health for the patient. And for that, if they keep their patients healthy and their patients don't use all the allocated money for them, then either through an ACO or an MSO or any of those uh, alphabet acronym organizations there that help manage a large patient population, then there are bonus structures that are set up to kind of help distribute the savings to the providers for doing such a great job of making sure that the chronic conditions are monitored, evaluated, assessed, and treated. So, of course, when we have any type of a payment system, we have to have some checks and balances in place. And the Affordable Care Act back in 2010 put in some regulations stating that we need to have a better monitoring system and we have to start monitoring these conditions that are reported, these HCC category conditions that are reported, to make sure that those conditions are monitored, evaluated, and assessed, and treat, and that that money being allocated towards that patient is correctly allocated. So uh, again, in 2010, um, we, came, we were introduced to the RAD-V audits, which is a risk adjustment validation, data validation. So we do, uh, the, the insurance companies, those payers that have been selected to manage the Medicare funds, they have an obligation to come in and audit the patient's chart just to make sure that this condition is indeed being monitored, evaluated, assessed, and treated. Now, a lot of times um, you will see this done even on a smaller scale level. You'll see the ACOs and the MSOs are out there doing these types of audits, again, to make sure that the record is signed by the authenticating provider who is eligible to report these services. So our notes have to be closed. They have to be authenticated by the physician or the non-physician practitioner that is eligible to treat a patient, right? Again, if the nurse, an RN or a, um, an LPN is recording these diagnoses, that's outside of their scope and they're not able to do that. So there really should not be any additional reimbursement set aside 
for those types of providers. So that's why you hear a lot of talk about got to get the notes closed on time, got to get the notes authenticated by the physician or the non-physician practitioner, because that's the way it all starts. If the note's not signed, none of the diagnosis count. The next thing that we kind of look over is to see if there, uh, if those doc, excuse me, those conditions are monitored, evaluated, assessed, and treated in in the note. You can't just have a list of diagnosis codes. A list of diagnosis codes doesn't support that those conditions are being treated, right? And we're not going to assess extra dollar amounts for a condition that's just on paper. For example, um, if you have a patient who presents with a diagnosis of COPD, but there's no documentation in the record whatsoever that this patient has Can you give me a shout out if the volume, if you get, uh, if audio returns to us? Nothing yet? No? Okay, let's see. Mm. I should send you a little posty note that says, we're good? Oh, we're good now. I was going to show you a posty note that says working on it. Okay, awesome. Great. Super. So where were we? We were talking about documentation. And, and so sometimes as coders, that's a little bit frustrating for us because we get information from all different places. But uh, the truth of the matter is that each one of those conditions, in order to have a, a value to them, they do need to be a condition that at least sometime over the past 12 months that that primary care doctor has either documented that the condition is being monitored and monitored by how there has to be some support to that monitor so again it, it just could be something as um, you know they're checking in with the patient on every visit they're making sure that respiratory wise they haven't had any exacerbations they continue to take their medication they have their rescue inhaler that's a great monitoring assessing the condition might be you know there's an x-ray on file that the provider took to make sure that the condition isn't worsening. 
Um, evaluating, excuse me, I, I jumped the assessment before I did the evaluation, but the evaluating it, again, could be having that patient go and have a PFT test so they can see the degree of the COPD. And then the treating is making sure that the medications are prescribed and they're being filled and the patient is able to use that to maintain or to meet monitor, evaluate, assess, and treat that condition for the 12-month period. So each one of the conditions that a patient has that contributes to that additional per capita that is provided to the patient, that needs to be documented every year in order to get credit for those conditions. So go back to the diabetic patient that has an additional $5,000 allocated for them to help take care of their diabetes, um, that diagnosis gets erased every year and must be repeated every year in order to continue to receive the, the, the additional revenue or the, not revenue, but that additional allocation to that patient. So a couple of things, we have Medicare Advantage, works on a value-based. They allocate more money to sicker patients who are being monitored, evaluated, and treated for those conditions, those uh, 11,000 conditions, 83 categories that have an additional value to the patient. We need to make sure that the documentation is coming from a reparable source so that their notes are signed by the the authenticator, so is the physician or the non-physician practitioner. Um, you can accept notes from a physical therapist, um, from your licensed clinical social workers. Again, these need to be captured by the primary care just to say that he's aware of the team that's taking care of this patient, their interactions, that the primary care approves of the treatment that they're receiving from these other uh, entities. Um, and then those conditions can be captured through the primary care doctors reporting on that patient. And then the last thing is we need to make sure that they're being captured every single year. So documentation throughout the year, at least one visit. And let me tell you that the annual wellness visit for Medicare Advantage patients is the best time to make sure you're capturing all of those conditions. The, that paint a picture visit where they're assessing the patient's overall health and overall social health every year. So that's a great time to make sure that you're capturing all the conditions for each one of those patients. So I'm going to turn this over for some questions. Now you know that in about 20 minutes we can't cover everything about risk adjustment. I just wanted to give you an idea of how that works. Um, if you're a coder that is just coming into the industry, risk adjustment really focuses around those diagnosis codes, right? So it's important that we're using the guidelines that are set out for diagnosis coding because that's the base on how we report diagnosis codes, right? Um, but uh, other ones that are coming through, you can become an auditor, you can become a risk adjustment coder. There's so many opportunities on this risk side and before I turn this over to questions, one more thing. Do you know that about 43% of all Medicare beneficiaries are already on a value-based uh, model, payment model, so some sort of a Medicare Advantage model? And it's not just Medicare. Medicaid also has a value-based payment model where they outsource to other commercial payers to manage Medicaid patients. And also, we gather information from 
patients who have acquired healthcare through the marketplace. So we're also gathering data from that source as well. So uh, Medicare risk is Medicare risk adjustment or this risk adjustment value-based payment model. This is the new wave, guys. This is where we're going. It makes good sense. It makes sense to allocate the money for the sicker patients than to have money set aside for those healthier patients that may not need those funds available to them. So let's talk about it. Let's do some chatting. I want to hear from you guys. Ask me some questions. So I have a question here that says, is there a limit to the number of conditions that can be reported per patient? There's not. There's not a limit to it, but you have to make sure that it annually these conditions are monitored, evaluated, assessed, and treated by the primary care physician that it's reported for each one of these patients. So for example, if a patient has an amputation, and although they've been coming to see Dr. Smith for the last 10 years, that amputation needs to be monitored, evaluated, assessed, or treated at least once in the 12-month period. So, you know, hey, patient Bob, um, how's your amputation going? Does your prosthetic still work well? Do you have any areas that are, uh, you know, wearing on you? Do you need an adjustment? You know, how is it going? Let's look at the stump. The stump looks good. And that way we can submit that 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 diagnosis code, sorry, that diagnosis code to make sure that the proper money is allocated for that particular patient. Think about it. A prosthetic, it, that's pretty expensive. And sometimes with prosthetics, there can be wears and ulcers can happen and there's wound care sometimes that's needed. And that's all very costly. And so we want to make sure that the funds are allocated in the event that that patient needs to utilize services for their prosthetic limb. How about another question? Anything on the table, guys? Let's talk about risk adjustment. So I did mention, someone asked about the annual wellness visit. I did mention that the annual wellness visit is a great opportunity for our providers to capture all of those particular diagnosis codes that do have this additional value attached to them. So that's what I recommend. I recommend making sure that all your patients have their annual wellness visits at least once a year, preferably in the beginning of the year so those codes can be captured. Um, I have another question here. What should a new coder do if they are interested in this area? That is a super question, Mina. And I would tell you that you need to really focus on your diagnosis coding. So read the guidelines that are in your ICD-10 um, book. There are also some great um, guides out there when it comes to risk adjustment data validation. So we have a nice manual from CMS that tells us how to properly identify all of these conditions um, in an auditing scenario. So you could go into either becoming a risk adjustment coder, a risk adjustment coder educator, where you're talking with providers about how they can meet, monitor, evaluate, assess, and treat each one of these conditions better. 
Um, or you could become an auditor, an auditor going in and looking at these documentation and making sure that every condition is captured. But it's not just making sure that it's captured, but it's also looking for opportunities out there that maybe a provider missed that um, maybe came from a specialist's note that they didn't quite have an, uh, you know, be able to capture the diagnosis from. Maybe the patient is seeing a physical therapist for a condition that maps to an HCC, remember that higher alcohol category code condition there. Um, so that's a great place for you to start is read the guidelines and then get involved. There's lots of companies. You can find jobs on LinkedIn, on um, Glassdoor, Indeed, uh, even Facebook has an opportunity for you to find jobs at this time if this is an area that you want to go into. Do we have any more questions? So I have a question here that says, how do we find the codes that map to an HCC? Great question. If you go to the CMS website, the CMS website will provide you with links that will take you to the list of HCC codes. Um, I don't have that link available to me right now. If you send me an email, I can send it back to you. My email is chall, C-H-A-L-L, at outlook.com excuse me, at, at sterlingglobalsolutions.com. Let's get that up there on the, the, uh, the, the chat log there. So everybody could see my email. You can always send me an email if you want more information about that. And I can send you the email there regarding where to find those HCC codes. So Steve just gave us a great little tip here. Also check your local AAPC chapters on Facebook. I got a risk adjustment job that way. Good job, Steve. Absolutely. Um, those chapters are amazing. And you can, now with the COVID, we are doing so many virtual meetings and all the chapters now have social media pages, not just on Facebook, but I've also seen them on LinkedIn, Instagram, where you can um, join these AAPC chapters nationwide. And they're always posting job opportunities as well as educational opportunities. So if you want more information on risk adjustment, more than just the 20, 30 minutes that we have here, you really want to dive into it, that is a great place to go to is start with your local chapters. Um, and again, on Facebook, you can find lots of different pages that have to do with coding. I love AAPC. I teach for AAPC um, and, and I'm part of their subject matter expert team. I think there's a lot of resource there for a, from an edu educational perspective as well as from an employment perspective. They have the finger on the pulse of what's going on, but there are a lot of resources out there if you are interested in getting into the risk adjustment world. Again, risk adjustment primarily focuses on those diagnosis codes and the quality of the diagnosis codes. So um, CDI, clinical documentation integrity, is the cornerstone here because we need to make sure that each one of those conditions that maps to an HCC does have the proper documentation to back it up. Um, and that way that patient has the funds available to take care of them and they're not considered a costly patient, right? 
So we have a couple more minutes left, guys. How about some more questions? Anybody else have a question about risk adjustment uh, itself or working in risk adjustment or what's my favorite risk adjustment code? Anybody? My favorite risk adjustment code will probably be one of the diabetes codes. Um, uh, there's so many different um, combo codes when it comes to diabetes that um, I really enjoy those codes. They're almost always supported in documentation and easy to educate providers on documenting those diagnosis codes for diabetes. How about another question? Okay, I have another question here that says, what, how do we approach a provider who doesn't have clear documentation of MEET, monitor, evaluate, assessment, and treat? And so that would be through a query. A query is a communication between you and the provider, the coder and the provider, that asks them specific questions um, about the documentation that is presented. So perhaps we can ask documentation questions like um, the patient, you reported that the patient has chronic kidney disease, CKD. Uh, are you able to let us know what the stage of that CKD is so that we can properly code this condition with a code that maybe supports an HCC? Not all chronic kidney disease codes support an HCC, only some of them do. So a query back to the provider, asking for more specificity or being specific in what you're looking for. You're looking for the stage of that CKD. And so you have to have that, be able to have some communication and dialogue with the provider at that point. And remind the provider that they're also gonna need to put an addendum into the chart so that that documentation supports the stage of CKD that he's advised you that the patient has. So it all comes back down to documentation and what is supported in the documentation. So a great opportunity for providers to learn how to tweak their documentation just a little bit to better show how they're supporting these conditions. So we have time for one more question. Who's going to be the lucky winner of the last question today? Okay, so it looks like Jacob is going to be the lucky winner of the last question of the day. So how easy is it for me to get into risk adjustment? So it, you really need to have a strong foundation in diagnosis coding. So you have to gauge yourself there. There is a certification that can be obtained through the AAPC, um, the Certified Risk Adjustment Coder. So I think that's, they also have a wonderful education platform on that. But I would start specifically in those ICD-10 guidelines and really understanding what is required. And so if there's no more questions, that's our coding and coffee for today, guys. I look forward to you joining me next week. Uh, there will be a poll on LinkedIn to see what topics you would like to talk about next week. So please make sure that you add your comment of what you would like to hear, uh, whether it be uh, CPT coding, ICD-10 coding, whether it's modifiers, whether it is uh, HixPix coding, it could be 
uh, expanding upon value-based, we can do a deeper dive into HCCs if you'd like to. Uh, there's really no topic that's off the table. We can talk about compliance and how to implement a proper compliance program into your organization. So just reach out and let us know what you're interested in and we'll have a little chat. Okay, guys, have a super week and an even better weekend. And I'll see you next week. Thanks for watching.